Missouri Governor Eric Greitens, his first year in office. Today on Deep Background, we'll talk about what has and hasn't worked for the first-year governor. And joining me now to discuss that topic is the star's Jefferson City correspondent and our good friend Jason Hancock. Joining us by Skype, we're trying to do a podcast on Skype because Jason needs to stay in Jefferson City, I guess. Great to have you with us. Let's just hope technology does not fail us. (laughs) Well, uh, give us your own impression, Jason, to start the conversation uh, of Eric Greitens first year. I think it's hard to find a Republican or a Democrat uh, in in our area, who isn't fairly critical of the governor, particularly not so much on his policy positions, but his approach to governance. Give us your own perspective from down there. I, I think you're right. I think there is a there. The, the governor definitely has his supporters in Jefferson City. He has some loyal Republicans who think he's done a great job and. You know, he has gotten results in a number of areas. Uh, He's not necessarily followed the pattern of previous governors. A lot of his progress has been done through appointments, through boards. Not always the cleanest process in the world, but he has, um, you know, he has moved the ball down the field on a number of issues. But the same tactics that have worked on one hand have alienated a lot of his own Republican Party members on the other, especially legislators. It undercut his efforts to enact ethics reform in the legislature, which was a big campaign pledge. And going into the 2018 session, whether that whether the well has been poisoned between the, the governor and his Republican colleagues in Jefferson City is, is a really open question. And, and we're not sure going into this session that starts next uh, on January the 3rd what to expect and what sort of reaction he'll get for his agenda when he shows back up. Yeah, how would you summarize the governor's approach in the first year? Is it has he been different? I mean, I think an argument could be made that other governors have had rocky first years. I, I think of uh, Matt Blunt, for example, and maybe even to a degree Jay Nixon. But but Greitens seems a unique example in, in part because he sees governance as pretty much a permanent campaign. Am I seeing that right, that it's that every decision is sort of seen, not every decision, but virtually every decision, is seen through sort of this political lens that omits the kind of back and forth that is traditional in Missouri between the executive and the legislative branch? If I had to sum up in one word, or maybe it's two words, uh, how to de- <laughs> how to define the, the governor's first year? It's just hard charging, you know. The, the first interaction he had with the legislature, uh, and meaningful interaction he had with the legislature, was around the pay increase. There were some lawmakers that thought it was time after, you know, I think it's been almost ten years, to raise the pay of state legislators. The governor got highly involved in that. Ended up in a shouting match by some reports with another state senator, a Republican. Um, really rubbed people the wrong way with his involvement. And that set the tone in a lot of ways for how he interacted, especially with the state Senate. Eventually, it devolved into his nonprofit that his political team founded, actually going after his Republican colleagues in the Senate. Rob Schaaf, in particular, a state senator from St. Joe, who had his cell phone number put out there by uh, by this nonprofit. People encouraged to call him. So he's definitely... um, Hard charging. He's he's definitely dis- he's he he when he goes after a goal, he is uh, 
He, he's not going to be dissuaded, and sometimes that's a good thing, and sometimes that's a very bad thing, depending on where you stand. And, and it doesn't appear as if, Jason, he can be dissuaded by what I call democratic norms, which is the idea that disputes uh, are settled through conversation and compromise. It, it, you do get a sense that in, in in most of his approach in the first year, it is my way or the highway. Am I wrong? No, that's absolutely right. I, I don't think yeah. he's that interested in the, the negotiation process. And, and a lot of times what's been interesting is if even if his position doesn't prevail, he finds a way to try to declare victory. You know, in his conversations about the State Board of Education, for example, he often cites that the budget he signed fully funded the foundation formula for public schools. Well, the budget he proposed did not come anywhere near that. That was something that the legislature did. The budget he proposed actually made some cuts to other areas of, of the public education budget. But, you know, as the governor, as the guy that signs the bill, he gets to he's getting to claim a lot of the credit for that. So. Right. And, but the, the other example, the most recent example, is the dispute over the Veterans Commission, the Missouri Veterans Commission, uh, in which he appointed some members, uh, uh, got uh, or at least recommended that the head of the commission, the executive director, be fired, some changes uh, be made at the St. Louis Veterans Home. And he put out a press release that, oh, when we found out veterans were being mistreated, we acted. You know, it took him a year to get around to this, at least arguably so. He does seem to have some penchant for taking credit for things in a way that, again, some people, Republicans and Democrats, think is pretty aggressive. Yeah, on that veterans issue, I mean, if you recall, he wrote this, a rather scathing letter to Senator yes. McCaskill and, and Senator Blunt that argued that they were blowing this out of proportion, that there was nothing to see here, that investigations had been done. And it wasn't that long after that that he came out and said that there was problems and we're going to fix them. So, you, you know, there is a bit of a revisionist history with this governor sometimes, and uh, it's like, like as as we keep coming back to, I don't think it bothers him that it bothers, you know, the political chattering class or that it bothers yep. the, the, the state legislature. The question is, what's the long term impact on his administration when he makes all these enemies in the in the legislative branch? Yeah, man, I want to come back to that. But let's cover some specific ground that you've written about and that we can talk about a little bit. That's the uh, predilection for the use of dark money donations. You had some uh, work in the paper over the last couple of days, dating back to the campaign, but also the, you know, a new Missouri, which is this uh, dark money group that may be helping him a little bit. And then his predilection for secrecy on his uh, cell phone of that, you know, his staff and text messages, Let's go over both of those stories. That It's very clear that he believes that some things should not be in the public eye. In fact, on the, on the uh, dark money thing, he has written and other Republicans have written that this protects people from intimidation and that he, he's been a robust defender, if you will, of dark money, right? Now he is. There was a time during the campaign where he was outspoken in favor of transparency. I can't remember the exact quote, but he said something along the lines of what's really important is transparency uh, with the money because he was getting attacked by some anonymous uh, federal PACs. But now his position is that it's a free speech issue, that people should be allowed to donate to these organizations without fear of retribution by having their identity outed. Um, and he has become rather dependent on a lot of the secret money. You know, as you mentioned, we had a story that came out yesterday that his former campaign advisor 
was actually doing campaign work for one of these dark money nonprofits, and the money was being funneled into a, a federal pack that was then spent to benefit Greitens. And they had a Kansas. It was in Kansas that pack. Correct. Yeah, and and they yeah. had long denied any sort of connection or coordination, and now they have this rather sharp connection, this this direct connection between the campaign and and this dark money group. And you know, this is all right. carried into his administration. He's he has a very strong predilection for secrecy, which not only involves his campaign money, it involves open records requests, it involves his interactions with the media. It's and it's sort of an interesting and ironic counterpoint to his public perception, which is he loves the attention of the media when it's sort of these public displays of bravado, but he hates the media's attention and any sort of public attention to these other aspects of his administration. And why? Why is that? I mean, uh, has he made a calculation that the public not only doesn't care whether he defends his policy positions in public, but actively likes a governor who who appears to be sort of outside of those norms? I mean, is that there? Is that the calculation that the Greitens uh, people are making? I think that's part of it. I think they see social media as a way around the media. Um, that they can get their message out via Facebook or Twitter and they don't have to go through the gatekeepers that are the, the fourth estate. And, and I think that's a, something you're seeing at a, at a lot of different, uh, especially Republican officeholders around the country. Right. But what does that then mean, in your view, Jason, for governance going forward? I mean, I, I, again, I, I've talked, you, you brought this up, and I think that's really the, the key question. Uh, you know, Eric Greitens now has a year under his belt. What he does and how he approaches government isn't a surprise to anyone. Um, and, and, and in fact, we wrote an editorial about this the other day. It really, the ball seems in some ways in the court of the General Assembly in terms of how it reacts to this, to this uh, 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 approach by the governor's office. I mean, it, on appointments, on ethics reform, on open records and transparency, it does seem like in some ways the governor has just really directly challenged the General Assembly to either, you know, put up or shut up in terms of how it reacts to the executive branch. Is that a bridge too far or is that what the dynamic will be next year in your view? I think that that is the dynamic, but you're seeing the same sort of thing that's playing out at the federal level where can Republicans push back on a Republican governor or a Republican president who is going to sign their bills, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if their goal is to pass things like, you know, reforms of the legal system or tax cuts or abortion restrictions, Eric Greitens is going to sign all those bills. They're on the same page. And in a lot of ways, the successes that he scored his first year as governor any Republican would have scored those because they, Correct. they were he was, they were going to sign those bills regardless. He was just the guy that was holding the pen. And some would argue that his hard charging uh, his hard charging strategy that sort of alienated some may have actually hurt his ability to accomplish more. Right, and that's the point, isn't it? That that if the General Assembly believes that it must have the cooperation of the governor for things like abortion or tax cuts or whatever. Then, then, then they will approach him in a certain way. But if they conclude that he's going to sign those kinds of things no matter what, that then would argue that maybe there will be some people, particularly in the Senate, who are upset about what happened with the Education Commission, upset with at least the manner that the governor approached the Veterans Commission, uh, you know, and 
you know, his sort of routine insults of some members and the whole thing you talked about with Senator Schaff. I mean, it does seem like, again, the General Assembly will have to reach some decision as to whether they need Eric Greitens or they don't. Well, I think in a lot of the, the folks in Jeff City, the lobbyists and staff that I've talked to in the week leading up to the session have, have got this fear that what's going to happen is while the House will sort of continue on as it always has in sort of an efficient manner, because the House is a very top-heavy uh, bottom or you know top-down leadership right. structure, the Senate very well could just implode on itself, meaning gridlock, senators trying to tie up the appointments process over things like you said, the, the education board uh, appointments, you know, filibustering bills, sort of making stands in order to take a a harder stance against the governor. And I think that's going to be a bipartisan thing. There are a lot of Republicans with hard feelings from not only the last session, but, you know, the interim and his actions that have taken place since they adjourned last. So, yeah. And, and how would Eric Greitens respond to that? I mean, a typical governor might say, okay, if, if the Senate is imploding, I need to work with senators or try to figure out how to get around it. But you get the sense with Eric Greitens that he'll just insult them on Twitter and Facebook and, and expect that to make them come around. I, I mean, part of this is personalities, isn't it, Jason? I mean, part of it is just he rubs lawmakers the wrong way and they rub him the wrong way. And that's just been his, uh, you know, method of operation since entering public life. He's, you know, Donald Trump is the uh, is the picture of a counterpuncher. We always hear like he gets insulted, he counterpunches twice as hard. Greitens is, is, comes from a similar mold in that he does... Um, you know, he comes back twice as hard as you come at him. And a lot of that's, that's, that's some of the reasons why a lot of the people have been, feel alienated from his administration in the legislature and why there's some that just feel like they don't have anything to lose going against him, even though he's a member of their own party. Yeah. Is there a danger that the governor has overcalculated the public's patience for this? I mean, we're, you know, he doesn't face the voters again until 2020. So there is, much water to go under the bridge. But you do get the sense he, he does have core supporters and he remains, you know, again, we, there's no polling that I've seen, but it does, you know, he you don't get the sense that Missourians are up in arms about this. But, uh, you know, they will accept uh, expect some uh, action from their legislature. And if they get the sense the governor is more interested in climbing rock walls or, you know, rappelling into a rodeo than he is in, in the the business of governing, does that wear thin maybe in 2018 or not with the public? Well, I think that, well, two things. One, you have to figure out which audience Eric Greitens is playing to, if he's playing to a Missouri audience or a national audience. And Right. We're going to come back to that in a minute. <laughs> but as far as sort of the, the voters' backlash, you know, there's going to come a point, you know, the first year was supposed to be the easiest in a lot of ways, right? You have a yes. Republican supermajority, you have, you know, a honeymoon period, and that went away quickly. It only gets harder from here on out. And if the budget situation doesn't improve, a lot of really ugly, hard decisions have to be made over the course of the next three years. And you know, things like transportation. Well, particularly, well, particularly because federal tax reform could really blow a hole in the Missouri budget, right? Right, right. And, and things like transportation funding aren't getting any easier over the next few years or how to fund health care. You know, if you don't believe that the uh, congressional Republicans are go un going to undo Obamacare, then Missouri has to figure out how to rein in the spending on its own uh, bloated, I won't say bloated, but growing uh, Medicaid system. And so these are not easy decisions. They're not going to come 
easily for any elected official. And if you don't have a working relationship with the legislative branch, it could just continue to get uglier as the years go by. Right, right. And you don't have not only, you know, uh, partners in the legislative branch, but you don't have any friends. I mean, I think that's one of the dangers for Eric Greitens. When you insult someone like Roy Blunt, uh, as uh, Greitens did in that letter about the veterans issue, uh, you know, Roy Blunt has some influence in the Republican Party in the state of Missouri. And already some people are upset with the way the primary went in 2016. And so, you know, there comes a time when most politicians need help. I mean, they can't, you just... You know, in a democratic system, you can't do it all on your own, as I think Eric Greitens somehow thinks he can, that he doesn't need friends, that he can, you know, he he can just insult everybody and get his way through sheer force of will. That seems to me a danger in terms of how the public might perceive him if things don't get done and he continues on that path. I mean, that's just my analysis of it. I mean, the counter to that could be that if he keeps you know, the, the pedal to the floor on a lot of these issues and, and has the money to get his message out, which he most certainly does, then maybe the public blames the legislature, which is his hope, right? That the corrupt right. career politicians in Jefferson City are hamstringing our hard-charging governor and keeping him from doing the things he promised to do. You know, having several million dollars in a nonprofit ready to get that message out has got to be a benefit to him. And, and maybe the legislature plays into his political hand if they start obstructing or if gridlock becomes a problem. Right, right. And uh, frankly, I think Kansas is illustrative of how that works out because I think, uh, you know, Sam Brownback was equally aggressive in the first couple of years and he had some help from outside forces, Americans for Prosperity and others who were hypercritical of moderates in the legislature. And at some point, and that worked for several years. And then at some point, the voters just said, OK, we're tired of going th- th- through this year after year. Now, it, it didn't happen until the sixth year of Brownback's time in office. And, and, and Eric Reitens has only been there a year. So the patience may be, may be greater with the Missouri General Assembly than it turned out to be in Kansas. But, but I think the danger is still there. T- tell us, if you can, well, uh, does the 2018 election year change any of that in terms of how the General Assembly approaches its business and the governor next year? Well, I mean, as far as the legislative session goes, yes. I think you will have typically during election year, you have the, you know, the quote unquote, you know, election year bills. I'm sure we'll discuss guns. I'm sure we'll discuss abortion and some of those red meat conservative issues, tax cuts that um, that the conservative rural voters sort of clamor for in an election year. Uh, Democrats are hopeful that they can begin the process of clawing themselves out of political obscurity, right? They're so far right. down right now that they, they have know, no influence whatsoever. Right. They just need to start to lower the margins. There's I don't there's no chance whatsoever that they're going to get into a majority in the next 10 years, 15 years without some sort of massive sea change. And it's probably there's not much of a chance that they can get themselves out of the super minority in this next election cycle. But, you know, protecting Claire McCaskill and Nicole Galloway, the state auditor, picking up a few seats, especially in rural Missouri, where right now I think there's one rural Democrat in Missouri. Um, you know, that's going to be a big priority for them and would be seen as a rebuke of some sort to the governor who obviously is much like the president in a midterm is sort of, you know, in the background of any sort of election, uh, regardless of whether his name is appearing on the ballot.
How, how does Josh Hawley approach uh, state governance in 2018, in your view? I mean, he's obviously seeking McCaskill's job. Does does he does he need to put a little distance between himself and Eric Reitens, particularly on things like secret text messages and other other stories that are emerging, or does he? Does he turn to Greitens for support in some of the areas where he may need he may need support if he wants to compete with uh, McCaskill? That's a difficult one. You know, Holly and Greitens don't seem to have an overlapping political universe. You know, these are two people that sort of ran on a similar uh, political platform. This idea of outsiders, first-time candidates, cleaning up Jefferson City, and yet you know there's not a lot of overlap between who is loyal to each side. And so I'm not really sure how he'll approach a lot of these things. You know, there's been calls for him to investigate the governor's office over the use of that secret texting app that, that, that we'll probably talk about here in a bit. But yeah. um, he hasn't said one way or another where he's going to. He's weighing that decision. It would be a pretty huge thing if a Republican attorney general did appoint a, a special investigator to look into that. So um, I don't know what the political fallout would be from that, but it's definitely going to be interesting to watch him navigate the waters as attorney general while he's trying to steer a Senate campaign against a, a really tough opponent who's going to get an incredible amount of national attention in Claire right. McCaskill. And, and, and frankly, you know, we were talking uh, just a bit about whether uh, Eric Greitens is, is in trouble with the electorate of Missouri, and we may see some clues uh, about that, uh, Jason, in 2018 if – McCaskill tries to connect Greitens with Hawley aggressively, that would suggest that the, she has some information that the governor's popularity may be dipping a little bit. If, if she doesn't make that case, uh, if she doesn't put pressure on Hawley, for example, to to pursue these text message questions, uh, then that may be a, an indication that he remains, Greitens remains pretty pretty popular in those states. Now, and the other thing I think that plays into Holly's favor on all this is that for better or worse state government, people just aren't, don't always pay as close attention. So even if the governor is doing things that maybe would rub the electorate the wrong way or, or, or the other direction, he's doing things that they would love, sometimes it's hard to um, raise a lot of interest in that among the, the right, general public. Right. So. right, although if the roads are falling apart or the schools appear underfunded again, I think Kansas is a bit of an example in this way. But on the other hand, you just raised this uh, app that uh, the governor and others have on their phones that erase text messages. You know, people who believe in in good, open, transparent government, um, you know, tend to be concerned about stories like that. But you get the sense the public may be not quite as worried. Run us through the details of that story and how you think the public sees this this uh, development? Well, you know, we were able to determine and discover that the governor and most of his senior taxpayer-funded staff were, were had this app called Confide on their personal cell phones. Essentially, the app erases text messages after they've been read, and it prevents someone from forwarding the text or taking a screenshot of the text. It's, it's I think they're encrypted too, aren't they? Correct. Yeah, it's an encrypted yeah. texting service. And so when the news came out, a lot of transparency advocates were raising red flags. You know, they were concerned that, you know, there are laws that mandate that public records be retained for a, a certain amount of time. You know, with emails, it could be three years. Other things could be longer or shorter. 
and to have an app that automatically destroys those records, we have no way to determine whether they should have been retained or whether they were for personal text messages or campaign text messages, and that really has people concerned. Yeah, just quickly for listeners who don't know, the argument isn't that everything he texts should be made available to the public directly. It's that everything he texts should be reviewed by someone to see if it involves the public's business and then that subject to disclosure, correct? Right. And the attorney general made that point um, when he was asked about this. He said that text messages, even on a personal cell phone by government employees, especially between government employees, um, you know, they're not automatically public records, but they should be treated the same way things such as emails are treated, which is they get reviewed, and if it's determined they are a public record, then they are retained and they have to be made available to the public for inspection. Yeah, yeah. And and the governor has uh, and his staff have aggressively defended the use of this tool, correct or not correct? I wouldn't say they've aggressively defended it. You know, the governor was asked about this at a press conference in St. Louis, and he didn't. And he he criticized you, didn't he? He didn't. <laughs> he didn't say anything about the story itself. He didn't say that the facts were wrong or that we got any of our that information was incorrect. Right. He just simply said it was a non-story from a from the liberal media, and so he he essentially said, if you read between the lines, were, yeah, it's true, but who cares? So. Yeah. Right. But he but and again, that's kind of my question. Some people have said, well, this is just like a phone conversation, an oral conversation that wouldn't be recorded. Um, I think you and I know the difference. But again, as a public political issue, it seems like maybe this is less uh, I don't want to say significant, but less visible than other things the public might be concerned with. Yes and no. I think that the, the the general public sees something like this for what it is, which is the potential for subverting its access yeah. to its own government, and especially from this governor who, as we've already talked about, has taken great pains to hide much of his administration's actions from the view of the public. So in the hands of maybe Governor Nixon or Governor Coster or Governor Kinder or any of the other people who ran for governor or were governor in the last year, um, Maybe this wouldn't have been wouldn't have been as big a deal, but for this governor who has so shown such a preference for secrecy, it just sort of plays into that narrative. Yeah. Okay. Final question, and we'll wrap up. Talk to me a little bit about Governor Greitens' national ambitions. He has spent significant time out of the state, and he's getting some criticism for that too, including from your humble editorial board, which has on more than one occasion suggested that presidential politics is one of the motivations be behind many of the things the governor has said and done in the first year. Uh, you know, is that your own observation? What, what, what's the chatter down in Jeff about all of this? It's almost become a, uh, a foregone conclusion amongst most people in Jefferson City that Eric Greitens wants to be president one day, um, whether that's four years, eight years, 12 years, whatever. You know, he did reserve the website ericgreitensforpresident.com, you know, a number of years ago. Right. Right. Um, as far as his actions, that's absolutely something that plays into people's thinking about how he operates. You know, they, I, I spoke with someone just the other day who said they feel like he's just checking through a checklist. Like, okay, we did write the work, check. We've done something on education. Maybe nothing comes of it, but we've shown that we're doing something, check. We did abortion, check. And that he's trying to build this profile that he can then go nationally and sell 
um, with whatever sort of aspirations he may have moving forward. He, he did veteran. He did veterans. I think that you'll hear people say the whole veterans thing is part of that, and that suggests that tax cuts or tax reform will be on the checklist too, because no serious Republican can run for uh, for president without some uh, some record on tax reductions, right? So maybe that's the big thing that comes up this year uh, uh, down in Jeff City. No, I think that's absolutely true. And I also think that because he signed an executive order sort of implementing ethics reform on his own office, although it's not necessarily being followed, um, that checks that box and makes a lot of people think he's not going to put a lot of political muscle into some of his campaign pledges to ban lobbyist gifts or shut off the revolving door. So those might be um, sort of falling into the second tier of issues behind something like tax reform or, you know, we haven't passed a gun bill in a couple of years that could be on the agenda. So, you know, that's that's what a, that's the perception of a lot of folks in Jeff City that he is sort of just trying to amass this legislative agenda that will look really good when it's uh, when it's unveiled to a national audience. Right. But but he also he can't be unaware. We're almost uh, out of time here, Jason, but he cannot be unaware that if he does seek national office, that the quotes from people like Ryan Sylvie and Gary Romine and Rob Schaff and the editorials in the Kansas City Star and the Post-Dispatch will all become fodder for his opponents. I mean, doesn't he have to show some record of governance in order to to successfully – I mean, Chris Christie is the classic example of a guy who ran as the sort of, you know, I, I, I stood up to the hordes in New Jersey – and, uh, you know, stood for Republican principles and he got crushed. And, and so you just wonder whether their presidential ambitions will in some way temper uh, Eric Greitens' approach to governance or whether he doubles down. He's more secret. He's more aggressive. He's more critical. He's more outsider in 2018 and beyond. Well, I think two things. One, you know, a Republican running against, you know, quote unquote, career politicians in the liberal media has never gone wrong. Right. But right. Uh, but two, I think there is a point that you make that is valid. There's there's this fear. And I think it's felt in some circles of the Greitens universe that that this image of him is starting to calcify of a guy that is, you know, patholo- rigid. Yeah. P- pathologically ambitious and just just way too secretive. And if that becomes his image and he's no longer considered the conservative outsider, that could do some damage. But again, we're one year in and who knows where things land in the next few years, whether he runs for re-election or or, or something else in 2020. I agree with that. I just wonder if in 2018 he looks around and says, look, if I'm serious about 2020, that I need to at least uh, address this concern that I'm so rigid, so locked into this approach uh, that the clips will circulate around the country. I mean, I don't, you know, people, if you run for president, reporters do go into the state from which you hail and take a look at the record. And you just wonder whether that that bodes for some compromise and some relaxation in this session or whether everyone doubles down and it becomes such an aggressive, combative uh, General Assembly that nothing gets done and that and that everyone, as you say, becomes calcified. Well, I do know that when I, I was up in Des Moines when he spoke to an event in uh, the Iowa Fairgrounds and 
the Iowa press that were there were sort of flabbergasted because he refused to take questions from them as well. It yes. wasn't just a media yes. thing for Missouri. So he's, it seems like he's taking his strategy on the road, and I don't know how successful it will be. I guess time will tell. All right, great. Well, that's a good way to end it, Jason Hancock. Thanks so much for joining us again by Skype from Jefferson City, and good luck as the session unfolds and uh, and we get another year of Governor Eric Reitens. And by the way, for listeners and you know anyone who's paying attention, Jason, you've done some outstanding work to hold this governor uh, accountable, and that's so important in this state and other states, so we thank you for that. Thanks for having me. All right. Jason Hancock in Jefferson City. I'm Dave Helling with the Kansas City Star's editorial board. Thanks for joining us. You have been on Deep Background. 